They said, there is a plot to assassinate you. My friend, my mentor, gone. And they're asking, do you know who did it? Welcome to Betrayal, everyone. I'm your host, Darren Karp. This episode of Betrayal is going to take you to places you probably weren't expecting. We're going to uncover the lies, betrayal, deceit, and ultimately murders that surrounded the Chippendale Erotic Dance Company. You know them as the scantily clad men in bow ties, of course, but behind the scenes, there was death and jealousy overtaking the empire. And I'm so excited to tell this story because my guest today is the, and I repeat, the quintessential expert on all things surrounding the crimes and murders that took place around Chippendales. She's the host of the Spotify original podcast focusing entirely on this case we're about to get into today. The show is called Welcome to Your Fantasy. She's coming into my fantasy today. Welcome, <laughs> Natalia Petrozella. How you doing, Natalia? Great to see you again. Great to see you too. I'm so excited to talk about this. I know. Again, we have so much to get into. I mean, this totally. case kind of goes places. I feel like Chippendales as a name and a brand, most people probably know this, but I never really heard about this case kind of before actually uncovering it on your podcast. How did you sort of ultimately get connected and kind of be this expert on this Chippendale murders? Yeah, well, it's funny. You know, I was like a child of the 80s. I remember seeing the Chippendales on talk shows. Definitely didn't know that there was a murder involved. And then I didn't yeah. even know when I was a full grown up. And I actually was asked to comment on the Chippendales as like, you know, a phenomenon in, in feminism and the history of sexuality. And I just started doing some research and I'm like, hold on. There was this murder behind the scenes, a very big, like highly covered murder. And the show just went on. I had no idea. So then I started digging and then the podcast came out of that. And now like, I, it feels like a lot of people are talking about it. Yeah. What is your career sort of based in, you know, and is it is it journalism? Do you kind of have this like side thing where you're like, I don't know the answer to this. Let me go down a million Reddit threads. Are you that type of person? Hilarious, because so what I am is a historian. I have a PhD in history. It's like a very traditional go. discipline in some ways. I spent seven years at Stanford getting it. And so it's funny that I'm now like the world's leading Chippendales expert. <laughs> but <laughs> honestly, like what does a historian do? We ask a question and then we use everything we can to, in terms of research at rabbit holes to try to answer that question. And so that's what I did. And so it's not really Reddit threads. It's like archival tape and oral history interviews and Sure. old newspapers and all that. But that's basically what I did. I got interested in like, what's the deal with Chippendales? And it turned out to be this really interesting historical and true crime story. So this is like not the only thing that I do, but it's definitely yeah. of a piece with being a historian. I'm so excited to have you here. And you're someone who has obviously worked so closely on researching this case. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I really appreciate it. So let's get into it. So let's set the scene here. It's Los Angeles in the late 70s, and a male dance club that would eventually become the iconic Chippendales is in the early stages of sort of becoming this global phenomenon that we all sort of know about it now. Now, some of you listening may not remember Chippendales. You're probably a little bit too young. I was born in the late 80s, but it was certainly in the zeitgeist when I was growing up. But essentially, it began as a club with scantily dressed men in G-strings that kind of had these tuxedo cuffs and, and bow ties on. It was a place that mainly women would go to enjoy the night of fun and fantasy. Natalie, was this ever sort of billed as a strip 
club? Like they have gentlemen's clubs. Was this a ladies club or something like that? No. And actually in the early days, like the male strip contest, and it really was a contest, was just like one night of the week. They had backgammon. They had disco dance lessons. They had women's mud wrestling. And then they had this like take it off strip contest where it was not a choreographed show. It was like hot guys took off their clothes. Women clapped. The guy who got the most applause got a hundred bucks. And then, and then to answer your question, like more directly, once the male strip act became the clearly the main event that got the women lining up around the corner, the owner was very clear that he did not want it to be like a seedy sex club or a strip club. And so, you know, it was like an exotic dance review, but they never took it all off. Chippendales wasn't just born out of thin air. You know, it was really created and it was created by a man named Steve Banerjee. Now, this is a name that is riddled throughout this case that you're going to want to keep in mind, Steve Banerjee here. So Steve was an immigrant from India. Steve Banerjee arrives in the U.S., first working as a car service station employee, but he has sort of bigger dreams for his financial future. Steve creates a club called Destiny 2 in Los Angeles and becomes his own boss, partnering with his friend, Bruce Nahan. Now, in 1978, the club gets very busy on certain days of the week, but dead on others. You know, Steve kind of wants to take advantage of this, so he begins looking for anything that would draw people to the club, especially on those dead days. In early 1979, Steve and Bruce met a man named Paul Snyder, who was an ambitious promoter from Canada, and Paul pitches an idea to Steve and Bruce— a male strip show only for women. Now, Natalia, obviously now I think things are a lot less like one gender, this, that, and the other thing. I think being gay is a lot more out and open, if you will. Mm-hmm. Were males not allowed in this club at this point, or they just felt like this really only targeted to women? I mean, were there any, was there any homosexual culture within this at all? Such a good question. So as the story goes, Paul Snyder had seen a male strip show at a gay male club. So it was a show meant for men. And he was like, we should do this for women. And because it was the kind of act that was associated with a gay male club, Steve Banerjee and his boys were like very clear, like, this is not for gay people. This is only for straight women. And so they really, um, because it had that kind of association, had to be very, very clear that they were not letting any men in during the show. They were not trying to attract that kind of clientele. Steve is a little reluctant, but Paul says it will make a lot of money. So they move forward with the idea. And the idea, as you might imagine, is a huge hit, and they're forced to upgrade and rebrand. Destiny 2 gets a major structural upgrade and changes its name based on the style of furniture that was already existing in the club, which a lot of people don't know. And just like that, Chippendales is born. So Chippendales is a type of furniture, people, which is arguably, Natalia, the least sexy thing. Totally. Although if you've seen Chippendales furniture, you know, it's like sturdy, long lasting, well built. So if you think hard enough about like the brand there, I think they kind of maybe meant to apply some of that to the men on stage, too. I'm I'm sure it was uh, I'm sure it was there was a grand metaphor there. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I've often compared sexy couches, sexy G-strings. It makes sense. Natural. (laughs) And it's totally natural. Well, Steve Banerjee quickly finds himself making tons of money every single night of the week thanks to Chippendale's quick success. Word of mouth and even some legal issues that make their way to the press create the perfect scenario. Chippendale's is alive and thriving. And while Chippendale's is thriving, promoter Paul Snyder is looking for his own piece of the pie. 
At this point, Paul is dating an ambitious model named Dorothy Stratton, and he was also her manager. And, you know, at this point, they just submitted pictures to none other than Hugh Hefner, the playboy god that he is, for consideration (laughs) for Dorothy to become a playboy playmate. Paul Snyder is like one of those people that you read about and you see pictures of and you kind of like cringe um, at like the thought of him. Like he was Mm. always sort of like he was really a hustler and he was always trying to like. Yeah, smarmy and trying to cut a deal. And apparently reports are that at um, the Playboy Mansion where Dorothy Stratton was quickly becoming like this celebrity because she was such a popular playmate, he would like always be super possessive of her. He'd be like really kind of, you know, obviously like trying to network about whatever like new plan he had or he was trying to get off the ground. He was really a pretty sleazy guy, really socially awkward. And also for the reasons you said, I think really bitter in many ways at Dorothy's success. Like she's blowing up. He's the one who submitted her pictures and he's kind of like the loser husband. And I think he's actually pretty aware of that. And so that is really like souring their whole experience in Hollywood. He's dating up, as they say, and some men (sighs) kind of can't, uh, can't handle it. But for what it's worth, it was Paul that was kind of taking this cue from Playboy and gave Chippendales their signature look of shirtless collars and bow ties, right? That was kind of absorbed by that? Well, yeah, Paul via Dorothy. Like, that's the crazy thing. Right. Like, the story is that Dorothy had this connection to Hef and Banerjee, like, was obsessed with Hefner. Like, he wanted to be like Hefner. He loved having playmates at the sure. club. And apparently Dorothy got the approval or at least the permission to use cuffs and collars for the guys at Chippendales so they'd be almost like male Playboy bunnies. So yes, via Snyder, but again, it's Dorothy's hookup, which is really making it happen. Wow, it's just so interesting how these things get started. It almost feels like it just happened, but it really is a lot of stories behind this. Totally. Well, Paul eventually became more and more of a roadblock for Steve and his business. Steve recognizes that Chippendale's success can thrive without Paul, and he asks him to leave the business. And Paul moves on, but things in his world go from bad to worse. Dorothy, who also found Paul to be a roadblock in her own life as her star is rising in the Playboy world, tries to break things off with Paul. Imagine he's not the type of guy that likes to hear this, especially from a hot young woman that he kind of is claiming at this point. So he doesn't take the news well and tragedy strikes. Paul, destroyed at the idea of losing Dorothy, pulls out a gun and murders her in his own home before eventually pulling the trigger on himself. Sandra Theodore, a friend of Dorothy's before she died, spoke publicly about the tragedy, saying this. He he tied her up and he, he tortured her for several hours. And he shot her face off, which was taken away when he brought her there. He didn't want anybody to have her anymore. And just like that, one of the first tragedies surrounding Chippendales unfolds. So given sort of what we know so far, Natalia, and, you know, I I would say the trope of maybe this hot, young, up-and-coming woman and maybe the schlubbier, but maybe the brains behind it guy, there's a lot of jealousy that comes with that. There's Mm -hmm. a certain power dynamic that I think that shifts. And certainly this is the 70s and 80s where things are not as equal in society as maybe they Mm -hmm. are now. I mean, what does this murder-suicide sort of mean for the rest of today's story without getting too far ahead of ourselves? Is this just setting us up for the darkness that Chippendales really is? 
Yeah. In the most general terms, yes. Like the fact that there's this like proximity to this really well-known flashy brand, right? Playboy, which was famous for like making sexiness and what was once pornography kind of mainstream and glamorous. Like Chippendales is kind of like that. And I think the closeness with Dorothy Stratton like suggests that that link was there from the beginning. But then the incredibly ugly way that this comes apart, like the totally tragic death of Dorothy and of Paul too, although I'm not that sympathetic to Paul at all for lots of reasons. Um, That also also suggests the kind of like criminality, which was just below the surface there. And the way also like that the show just went on, like Paul was the MC, not when he died, but like he had been the MC, this totally gruesome murder happens. And Banerjee, who you introduced already, is just kind of like, yeah, I didn't really know him. And the show just goes on. And I think that shows like how powerful the Chippendales brand was and also how ruthless the guys behind it were and just being like, the show must go on. Well, I was going to say definitely ruthless and certainly greed and jealousy play a big role in this story. But this is great foreshadowing for what's to come, because eventually Steve and his business partners begin looking to expand the Chippendales experience beyond L.A. Naturally, they kind of want to move where everything's happening, which is New York City. And New York City is kind of this if you want to have a club New York City is it. L.A. is a little bit of a secondary market to what the Studio 54s had in New York City. And that's when they meet a man named Nick DeNoia. Now, Nick DeNoia is actually an Emmy Award winning producer for children's television at this point, which is the opposite uh, of what Chippendales is kind of advertising here, but quickly connects with Steve and his associates. And they prepare to expand the show to New York City. Nick immediately butts heads with everyone involved with the production of the Los Angeles version of the show, asserting himself as the man in charge and essentially changing the entire creative energy of the show. And while the production and rehearsals are happening for the expanded version for Chippendales, Nick and Steve meet and hash out the business details on a napkin in a diner somewhere one night after a performance. Now, this is this is the pivotal moment of this case, this napkin deal, as we're going to kind of call it here. This is sort of the turning point where it all kind of goes wrong. I mean, in general, business deals, whether it's for $5 or for $5 million, <laughs> shouldn't be hashed out on a napkin, no? Yeah, I'm not a contracts expert, but yes, Darren, that does good. seem right to yeah. me. <laughs> no, okay. totally. So Nick and Steve have been working together first in LA. And just like you said, like Nick made, really changes the creative energy. He's like this really hardcore director who's like has real rehearsals and choreography and, and costumes and all that. And yeah, when he, go, he goes to New York, which in some ways takes some of the steam um, out of the building steam out of their like growing rivalry because now he's across the country. But yeah, this napkin deal, which is supposed to kind of, you know, calm the waters a little bit, it only makes things worse. Have you ever seen the napkin? Was there ever a picture taken? No, right? I looked so hard. Nobody really knows. It's really maddening. But yeah, if you have the napkin listeners, bring it to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's essentially like a word of mouth thing. It's like hearsay, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, it's like a handshake deal for lack of a better term here. Now, essentially, Nick will assume the rights to Chippendales, given that he enhances the show and is bringing it to New York City, writes it down again on a literal napkin. So if he can create a successful show in New York City, he's going to get the rights to that show, essentially. Right. I mean, is that. Not to put too fine a point to it, but he says, I'm going to go to New York. So New York's going to be a much bigger production. He would get 50% of the profits in New York. And, and this is the clutch part, 100% of the quote unquote touring, touring show right. 
in perpetuity. This is important because one is 50% of New York, which is going to be bigger and he makes very big. But Steve is like, sure, take the touring show because there is no touring show at the time. So Steve is like, I'm signing you nothing. And then according to reports of the one guy who was the one other guy who was at the signing of the Did he not know what in perpetuity meant? You are so smart. Yes, that's exactly right. He didn't know what in perpetuity meant. And that's like the crux of why this doesn't flame out their conflict, but only makes it much, much worse later. And for the audience, I actually learned what in perpetuity meant on a Shark Tank episode. Uh. I watched a lot of Shark Tank, but it means basically forever. That's what it means. Like it's, it's indefinite. It is going on forever. And so Steve not really knowing, and to your point, not really, there is no tour to be had. So for him, this is kind of like, fake money he's signing away. He's very Mm one-track minded. He just wants to set up something successful in New York City because that's going to put him in like maybe a Hefner category. And Steve agrees. He signs it. Not, again, really understanding the significance to this. And this is the real turning point here. So let's just recap and set up what's to come. Chip and Tails takes off. His promoter commits a tragic murder-suicide. Steve hires Nick DeNoya to bring it to New York City. And then unwittingly-ish, although wittingly, kind of, signs the rights over (laughs) to someone else. This is just a recipe for utter, at least, business disaster. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that napkin deal is like at the heart of what goes wrong later, certainly from a business perspective, and much more. So while Steve is in L.A. running the show there, Nick was in New York getting lots of press for the success of the New York City show and more or less kind of becoming this face of Chippendales. I think in the public, if you were watching Sally Jesse Raphael at the time or Phil Donahue at the time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here. You would have seen Nick on camera, not Steve. Yeah, I think it's really important to mention that because it's not just the money of the napkin deal because Steve had been making money on this for a long time. And yes, he wants it all. But the fact that now the brand is a household name like he'd only always like dreamed of and it's Nick on TV. I mean, there's one show where the host is like, and this is Mr. Chippendale. I mean, I imagine Banerjee watching that and like seething, even if it's making him sell more tickets. Eventually, Steve and Nick stop talking to each other altogether, unable to come to terms with each other's roles in the skyrocketing business of Chippendales. Eric Gilbert, the former creative director for Chippendales from 1983 to 1991, spoke publicly about one instance when Nick barged into Steve's office. I was sitting in Banerjee's office one day and Denoya just blows into the office like a vampire and accuses Banerjee in this accusative voice, like, what are you doing with my fucking show? And that's when Banerjee was like, your your, your show, it's it's my my fucking, and he couldn't get get it out and couldn't express himself. Nick would take everything to the 10th level of extreme anger if you crossed him. He would say, you know, I'll fuck you up, bro. Don't fuck with me. Well, Steve's plan was to fire Nick in hopes that he fades away from the Chippendale scene. I mean, Steve's plan is just to kind of like pay him off, let it be. This isn't worth his time. But remember that napkin deal, which is very important here. And in the terms written on the napkin, Steve agreed that if the Chippendale show was successful in New York City then Nick could take Chippendales and own the traveling tour 100%. And that's Mm -hmm. what Nick did. 
And as you might suspect, the traveling tour was just as successful, if if not more so. I mean, everyone around the country wants to uh, give a dollar bill to a, a lovely, perfect looking <laughs> man here. And at the clubs in L.A. and New York City, the capacities are only about 500 seats. But on tour, talk about the Midwest, where rent isn't as high, over 2,000 people each night with 100 percent of tickets sold. So you're almost doubling profits in one night just by kind of going on this tour. It's a no brainer here. And Steve, the creator of this monumental franchise, is now starting to feel like he had been bamboozled by Nick in this napkin deal. I mean, but do you know, okay, like, since you're the historian of this, it, can this hold up in the court of law? I mean, if Steve had taken Nick to the court of law, did Nick have any right to this? What's the legality here? Great question. I mean, you know, it was a deal on a napkin in an industry where let's just say there was not a like robust precedent of case law around like intellectual property and male strippers. Sure. Right. Right. So, and there's no um, actual physical napkin that we know of. Yeah, that's that's completely right. Nick officially left Chip and Nails in 1985. Then the story is a little shady. He apparently licensed the name of Chip and Nails from Steve to continue touring. I mean, honestly, the legal aspects of it are not totally clear. But what is clear is that Nick kept touring under the name Chip and Nails. There was a distance um, like uh, requirement, even in that napkin deal, like he had to go more than like, you know, 100 miles from the, the New York club. And so he go like 99.8 or like 100.1 miles away, like just to piss Steve off. And then apparently, you know, in the moments, in the years before social media, when you'd be like caught on tape, Steve apparently had like his own traveling troupe and he would take the guys out from LA to like Seattle and put on his own show, which he wasn't allowed to do either. And so there was, I think everybody was behaving badly here and the animosity was building and building and building. But again, the women kept packing the seats. Like there was enough to go around. There were so many men willing to dance. There were women willing to go. Like, I feel like they all should have like, you know, done their part and enjoyed their cash and forgotten some of the ego battles. Yeah. And just kind of lived off the wealth here that these women are sort of providing. But, you know, you kind of mentioned licensing names and Nick would, you know, if you can't go 100, he'll go 99.9 to kind of skirt the law here. Didn't mm-hmm. he license the name for the tourists like the original Chippendale? So that way he wouldn't be legally obligated because Steve owned the rights to the name Chippendales. No. Yes. Yes. That's exactly like they were totally fighting over the name of the brand and he worked around it completely. There were also other troops where former Chippendales men would market themselves as like formerly of Chippendales and like the formerly would be in tiny letters and the Chippendales would be huge. And so Steve was so angry about all of this. Of course, it showed the power of his brand. Right. But he wasn't making a dollar on every time it was used. And that to him just seemed so wrong. Steve feels like he's getting hoodwinked at this point, essentially. Totally. Things between Nick and Steve reach an absolute boiling point, as I'm sure you can imagine. Okay, and then one night, retired NYPD detective Mike Geddes gets a phone call saying there's been a shooting at West 40th Street, appearing to be a homicide. And when he gets there, he sees the police presence and tells him someone has been shot in the head on the 15th floor, and it is informed it is actually one of the owners of Chippendales, and it's Nick DeNoia. Forty-six-year-old Nick Denoya is found in the nightclub's offices on West 40th Street. He had been shot once in the face with a heavy caliber weapon. Will Mott, who was an associate of Nick's, who was also at the scene when Nick was killed, he tells police that a Hispanic male entered the office, asked him if he was Nick. He said no and directed him to Nick's office before walking away to use the restroom. 
So automatically, we know that the shooter didn't know Nick personally, because you'd think that he would know the face of the guy that he is about to shoot, given the fact that he's asking this guy if he's Nick. While Will is in the restroom, he hears a single shot go off and runs back to Nick's office to find him dead with a bullet wound to the head, immediately calls 911. And the same night, Candace Maron, an associate producer of The Chippendale Show in L.A. and friend of Nick's, decides that the show would go on because that's what Nick would have wanted. He put his entire life, or at least later half of his life, into this show. He would never miss a show date. That's what he wanted. But to her surprise, the press come to the Chippendales location, asking her what she knows and who she thinks would have killed Nick. I felt like it was bleeding from my pores. All the air is knocked out of me. Nick is my friend. He's my mentor. He's my companion. And he's snatched and gone. And the flashbulbs are in your eyes. And they're asking, do you know who did it? And I was convinced that it was Steve Banerjee. But of course I answer, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, police begin their detective work and find a possible suspect who was in the vicinity during the shooting. But for them, it's hard to say who could have killed Nick because he was a very difficult person to work with and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He was one of those personalities, you know, like a genius type that we were sort of talking about that kind of will get anything done no matter what happens. He was a highly targeted person to a lot of people, not just Steve. So I just want to put that in the back of everyone's mind here. But the police eventually get around to interview the club managers, dancers, friends, and family, but nothing really stands out. Not only that, but Nick was also a very private person. And if he had any problems, he sort of made sure no one knew about it. Detective Mike Geddes only has people's opinions to go off of in this case, since there's no fingerprints, gun evidence, no pictures, security footage. We're talking in the 80s, people. There's not a lot of technology back then. All he has is this description of a man from Will, from the guy who came into the office. And detectives couldn't find a lead. Bruce Nahan, the lawyer who worked closely with Stephen Nick, started a reward fund to get more tips. At this point, only thing detectives can do is wait for someone to flip and lead them to the killer. And the case goes cold. And when Nick died, he didn't leave a will. So by law, everything he owned could be passed down to his siblings since he didn't have spouse or children. And this includes the rights that Nick owned of Chippendales. Now, not wanting to be a part of the business or even the drama behind it, Nick's siblings ultimately sell all of Nick's rights to Chippendales back to Steve Banerjee, who then takes full control of both the L.A. and New York City shows as well as the touring show. I mean, this seems like very outside of the death of Nick. This seems like kind of a win-win for Steve Banerjee in a lot totally. of ways, Natalia. I mean, he, he he not only has this frustrating associate, for lack of a better term, out of his life, but he mm-hmm. also gains back the right to the show that's just proving to be successful all around. It, it's kind of easy, at least for the audience, I think, here to assume that Steve has all the sort of the motive to kill Nick Denoya here. Right. It's almost too good to be true if yes. you're Steve Banerjee, isn't it? Yeah, yes. absolutely. I mean, I do think, though, at that time, it's like as much as you said that like a lot of people had issues with Nick and Steve obviously had big issues with Nick, it still feels like a pretty big leap that they would kill him, right? right. And so I think that that is part of kind of um, why it went cold, that there isn't compelling evidence for a murder. Mm-hmm. 
Drama just seems to follow this brand almost from its inception. Absolutely. And after being a full-time dancer for so many years, Chippendale's dancer Roger Menashe thinks it's best for him to resign and pursue something else. And when he talks with Steve, Steve agrees and offers Roger to become the manager of Chippendale, saying that having been a dancer himself, he would sort of know the ins and outs of the business. Obviously, a personable person doesn't mind kind of talking to people in a way that I think Steve kind of definitely cowered in front of crowds. Now, within a year, Steve and Roger have both New York and Los Angeles clubs at full capacity and had two touring groups. But having conquered America, it was time to take this act overseas. They're going global, people. Roger eventually evolves the small club in West L.A. to a huge empire. And Steve is more or less just sitting on a multi-million dollar operation, kind of caking in the bills here. From the outside, Chippendale seems like a multi-million dollar business. But in reality, it's facing major financial hardship, being repeatedly fined by the police, government and fire department on a consistent basis. And this is kind of that moral fiber that you were you were sort of alluding to, right? It's like it's very underground. You know, they were the dancers were kissing other people. You couldn't do that. You couldn't have certain clubs where men were taking their clothes off. There was a lot of different rules back then, no? Yeah. And honestly, forget all the like homophobic stuff and which obviously like plays into this whole story in ways like that shape all of it. But actually, he just kept like having parking violations and overcrowding and like, you know, breaking the noise regulations. And so what ultimately shuts them down, which is very soon after Nick dies, it's in 1988, the original club in L.A. shuts down because all of those complaints get to be too much. And like people are like, this guy thinks that breaking the law in all of these things which compromise neighbors' quality of life, he thinks it's just the cost of doing business. Like, no. And so they pull the alcohol license, which obviously is like death for a nightclub. It is a little ironic. And one lawsuit makes things especially problematic for Chippendales. After the show, Steve always opens the doors to men, and it would turn into a true nightclub. Remember, Chippendales was just for women at this time. But one night, a young man decides to stop by the club, and he's denied entry. And the problem with this, he's a law clerk for the head judge of the U.S. District Court, and as a result of being denied entry, a discrimination lawsuit is filed. A latter allegation says that Steve didn't discriminate against him that night because he was a man. It was actually because he was a black man. Okay, so that's better, right? This is a better level of discrimination. (laughs) It's not your gender, sir. It's the color of your skin. This is terrible. Yeah, no, it totally is. I mean, he was trying to come in when the men were allowed, which was after 10 p.m. Um, But this points up just the fact that Chippendales was always by design supposed to be a white space, which is ironic because Banerjee is like a dark-skinned Indian man, or maybe it makes perfect sense because part of, for him, what was creating this iconic American brand, it was having this super white aesthetic. And so his policies and the brand imagery totally reflected that. The door policy, the hiring policy, the guys who made it in the calendar and who were on stage. I mean, he very carefully crafts that as a very white um, experience. He's taking stuff from pop culture, seeing what works, and then implementing it into his clubs. And back then, I think the certain, certainly a movie stars and everything was very, very white, very, very Caucasian. And Steve is desperately trying to become the next Hugh Hefner and truly believes he's doing so based on all the money and control he has at this point. But the problem with this particular lawsuit was that Steve also believes that black men drove white women out of the club. And as horrible as this sounds, it's sort of an indication of the type of racism that was 
happening kind of commonly, particularly in Los Angeles in the mid-1980s, right? Like, he's not really an outlier in his thinking. He's wrong, but he's not an outlier. A lot of people think this, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is making what he thinks is a smart business decision, as some of the Black dancers who we talk to and, um, you know, white dancers, too. Like, he said, I don't want Black people here. Then people are going to think it's like a gangster place. And so he very, he was very deliberate about, like, what he thought was creating, like, you know, what he called a classy consumer experience. Now, that being said, you know, it's the 80s, not the 50s. And so he had to do that extra legally. But Also, I think it's interesting, he did always have one Black dancer because that was a certain kind of quote-unquote exotic um, Mm. experience for women. And so I think that that's interesting, too, in thinking about changing forms of racism at the time, that there wasn't that same kind of like disgust, don't touch me, don't come near me that you would have seen in like 1955 in a situation like this. But there's still palpable racism, which is exclusionary, but also like exoticizing, like, ooh, I can be a white woman and go to this club and see one black guy on stage who'll only come near me if I like summon him over. I mean, that's a real form of racism too, but a different kind. Wow. It's my how far we've come and sort of how far we haven't in a lot of ways. Totally. Well, Steve often stands by the doors, gives a nod no, depending on the race of letting people in. And the security guard is forced to come up with some poor excuse. Meanwhile, white men come to the door poorly dressed with a rude attitude and are let right in. So it's kind of obvious what he's doing here, whether or not he says it explicitly. Steve, having studied the American culture and what would sell, learns that sex sells and he monopolizes on that as much as he can by perpetuating an image of white America. Everything from calendars to advertisements have very predominantly white men as the focus of the act, as you said, Natalia. And as a result of the numerous lawsuits and allegations that Chippendales had against it, the club loses its liquor license and is unable to operate. So this is a nail in the coffin, no? I mean, you're a club without Mm -hmm. a liquor license. Like, what the hell is the point here? Yeah. And so ultimately that means that they have to shut down and they become like this, you know, like traveling acts, like a couple nights a week at Carlos and Charlie's because you can't operate like that. Steve is just growing angrier and angrier and and becomes more difficult to work with as Chippendale star begins to fade and the Adonis show across town is taking off. Reed Scott, a star dancer for Chippendales, is recruited to join Adonis as a choreographer. Reed flies out to Blackpool, England to do some Adonis shows, but one night His performance is halted prematurely. Two men stop by to share some major disturbing news with him. Reed Scott spoke openly about this moment, and let's hear it in his own words. One night, I was just getting into the show, and all of a sudden, the producer and the promoter of the show comes over, and he asked me to step down off the stage. He said, you need to come down. We've got to talk. We walk into this little office space, And there are two gentlemen in there in plain clothes, their suits and ties, very professional looking. They introduced themselves as detectives for the Blackpool area. And they said, we've been notified that there is a plot that men have been sent over here to assassinate you. So you can sort of see where this is going, right? I mean... Steve is is disgruntled and wants revenge for one of his own kind of being poached by this competing dance company here. This, in my mind, is just another tick in the motive here for Steve 
you know, with the Nick thing and now this, it's it's all adding up to me right now. Yeah, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, and this is like five years after Nick is killed, basically. So right. it's later, you know. So think about it. That's a long time. It's hard to connect for them those not dots. Not really done anything. Right. Yeah, and you can imagine if you're Steve and you're still selling out shows and calendars and like doing fine. I mean, I think he was pretty paranoid, but maybe you let your guard down a little bit and you kind of think it's going to be okay. People forgot about that guy. Hindsight's definitely twenty twenty, but so this mm-hmm. is where. This is where a man by the name of Ray Cologne and a man who simply goes by Strawberry come in. So we've got these two different guys here. We've got Ray Cologne and Strawberry. And they say this. Well, he told me these dancers were appearing in Blackpool, England, and he wanted me to fly there, catch these guys where there's a lot of people around, stick them with a needle, this poison, And then I was supposed to just ease out of the crowd, come home, collect $25,000, and live happily ever after. I'm going, what are you kidding me? Well, Strawberry says that the needles are filled with cyanide, and Ray tells him they were going to kill one dancer and put some fear in the rest of them. So when he realizes it isn't a joke, Strawberry plays along and agrees to help, thinking he would be killed next, kind of for just knowing, because sometimes when you know too much, that's a threat in and of itself. And so there's kind of a lot to play here. And on the car ride to the airport, Strawberry knew his only way out was getting away from Ray and going straight to the authorities. When he gets to London, he throws out the cyanide needles and thinks of going to the English police, but thinks that they would never believe his unlikely story for some reason, which to be fair... It's probably true. I mean, even now, be saying it like this is like out of a movie. Totally. And plus, like in an American accent, you know, we don't sound so smart to those Brits. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, that's also true. This guy named Strawberry. Like, uh, totally. A lot of plan against him. So his plan B is to fly to the FBI office in Las Vegas and advise the agents there that he was hired by an individual to kill two dance members of Adonis. So that's exactly what he does. And FBI agent Scott Gariola knows to never underestimate someone's story. He just needed the proof now. Gariola plans to have Strawberry call Ray to get a confession, which was more than enough evidence to know he wasn't making up a story. Agent Gariola knows he has to keep Strawberry safe, especially if they need him as a witness for a trial later on. So they put him in witness relocation. And the FBI is then able to get a warrant to search Ray Cologne's residence. And it's here where they find a canvas bag with a poison symbol on it and a jar filled with cyanide. Cologne is swiftly arrested by the FBI with a bond of $100,000, which he didn't have. But the question still remains, why is this happening and who is behind it? What are Cologne's connections to wanting to kill Reed Scott? Back in Liverpool, Reed Scott is still touring with Adonis, but understandably is not doing well knowing that there are people potentially out to kill him. Gariola receives word that Ray Cologne wants to cooperate with the investigation and admits to his involvement in the murder-for-hire plot to kill the two members of Adonis. And Cologne admits to trying to burn down nightclubs in Los Angeles in 1984, and I think a lot of people were associating that with some religious people, then admits something that even investigators weren't expecting. That in 1987, he assisted in the murder of an individual by the name of Nick DeNoia. And that's not all. 
Cologne tells the FBI the name of the person who had him do all of this was none other than the owner of Chippendales, a guy by the name of Steve Banerjee. And Cologne says that he flew to New York City with an individual named Louie, who was the one who actually pulled the trigger and killed Nick DeNoya. Gariola and two other detectives get to work to make sure they have every single detail to close in on arresting Steve Banerjee. They interview Cologne a few more times where he describes the murder in exact detail to the evidence that was collected at the crime scenes. Something for you, I have a question for you, is like, mm-hmm. Ray Cologne isn't obviously like a great humanitarian here. I mean, he's <laughs> kind of dealing in the underworld in a lot of ways. Yeah. Is it up to Gariola to just kind of like trust and hope that he's right here? I mean, what? how good is, is Ray Cologne's word? Well, great question. Um, Gariola, I can tell you, got like a good vibe from Ray Cologne and felt like he could trust him and felt like, yeah, Ray had been involved in a lot of shady stuff. And by the way, he had known Banerjee for years and he was like his odd jobs guy. So he would like fix the stereo and maybe like attempt an arson. Like he would just kind of do all his dirty work for him. And as Gariola understood it, and I think this is kind of right from what I know about Ray, like, no, he was no angel. But at this moment in his life, He actually was sick and knew he was going to die pretty soon. And he was kind of trying to like make things right. So it was like in some ways part of like, hey, I want to make a deal and spend my last years not rotting in prison. But I also think there was almost a little bit more of like a spiritual, moral reckoning thing going on. He didn't want to be punished maybe by some higher order he might have believed in at the time. Yeah, totally possible. The FBI finally gets around to reviewing the files and everything matches up to raise witness statements. FBI agent Gariola has enough evidence to convict, but they still need some more answers. And he recalls this point in the investigation. So at this point of the investigation, we have two things to figure out. One, who this person Louie is, the guy who pulled the trigger and actually killed Denoya. And number two was to find out if Banerjee was at the origins of these plots. How are we going to prove that? So through investigation, the FBI is able to find out that Louis's real name is Gilberto Lopez Rivera, but at the time, he's locked up in a state prison in California on a narcotics charge. Now they want to do the same thing they did with Strawberry. They wire up Ray with a recording device and drive to the state prison to have a meeting with Rivera. Rivera ultimately confesses on tape and even describes the exact position he shot Nick. I mean, this almost seems like they're really, they're really making headway here. It doesn't really solve how Steve Banerjee comes into the plot of all of this yet. There's really no connection there. And the FBI then goes and starts questioning Steve's workers to get a sense of what he was like. They learn that, as mentioned before, Steve wasn't happy with competition. Former associate producer of Chippendale's Candace that we mentioned before says that Steve Banerjee was envious of Nick DeNoya for getting all the credit of being the owner of Chippendale's and that he was getting all the attention and not him, but she didn't have hard evidence against Steve to show them that. That's just kind of the vibe in the room, but that doesn't really prove anything. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the mm-hmm. FBI is trying to find ways to get Steve to show guilt. They try to get Ray to just go up to Steve and ask him for money to get a lawyer about the situation. Steve actually agrees to this and said he would deliver money the next day, which he does, $14,000 in cash. But while that is highly suspicious, it still doesn't prove much, except that Steve is just kind of helping Ray out with some cash doesn't prove anything. And that's when Mm -hmm. things get taken to the next level. (laughs) 
Ray calls Steve again to meet at a hotel in Santa Monica. And this time they meet up and Ray has a recording device hidden in his shorts. After an hour, they both exit and Steve hands Ray a package from the trunk of his car, which turns out to be an additional $40,000 in cash. So let's pause here for a second because there's a lot of very dangerous and sort of nerve-wracking operations going on here. If any part of this plan with the FBI falls apart, it could backfire in crazy ways, right? I mean, Steve Banerjee isn't exactly a dangerous guy per se, but who knows what they're working with, right? And the smallest thing could F this whole thing up. Oh, totally. I mean, the only thing that must have reassured Ray is that he's the guy who's usually actually committing the violence. So (laughs) probably chances are Steve's not going to like murder him with his bare hands in that very moment. But no, Ray was absolutely freaking out in any, in all, Ray and the FBI agents, because Ray is worried that he's going to get exposed. It's going to be clear he's trying to get a confession and, you know, Banerjee's going to destroy him, possibly kill him then the FBI agents are really nervous that this whole thing falls apart too because they've gone through all these lens to get Ray out of prison, to help them. Ray's like driving around with them. They get him on medical leave. He's living at home. And they're all, they're doing all that and getting all of those allowances because they're so sure that Ray is going to set up Banerjee to confess and then they'll have the key to this whole um, crime. But if it falls apart, it's both Ray's well-being and really Gariola, who's very young, his whole career. Right. There's a lot of pressure on this case to kind of go totally. exactly, exactly right. Well, Ray tells the detectives that in the hotel room, he and Steve never actually talked, but passed around notes for an hour since Steve had a feeling he was being tracked and didn't trust Ray enough. And Ray tells the detectives that Steve is desperate to know what the law enforcement knows. And if Ray would be willing to meet up with Steve somewhere overseas, they could then talk. In Steve's mind, if he became a fugitive, there was no way he could cooperate with the FBI. Detectives come up with the idea to take Ray Cologne to Europe, where Steve would meet him and hopefully, hopefully incriminate himself. They travel Ray to Rome and try to get Steve to meet him there. But when Ray tells him to come meet him there, Steve had already gone to Amsterdam and couldn't travel to Rome without a visa. And he had been using an Indian passport. So this is thwarted now. This entire, all these miles being spent, this seems like futile. And not knowing he wasn't a U.S. citizen, this sort of ruined the entire operation. Steve tells Ray that he's unable to go to Rome, but that he could meet in Switzerland if possible, which is weird because Switzerland's always that neutral place. And here it is, (laughs) representing neutrality. And the FBI and Ray only had 24 hours to prepare an entirely new operation involving the Swiss police and setting up the rooms at the hotel with microphones. After all the preparation, Steve decides to switch it up at the last minute and meet in the lobby of the hotel rather than Ray's hotel room. Now, the FBI have to figure out how to get Ray in the jacket with the transmitter and recording device without having Steve find out. And this guy's already on level 100 of paranoia here. Now, the plan is Mm -hmm. to try to convince Steve back into Ray's room to get the best quality recording possible. Remember, they spent all that energy setting everything up in order to get a clear-cut confession, which means you need a very good recording device. And when Steve and Ray meet, Ray decides to take off the jacket, which cuts out the recording transmission, which is just another roadblock. And that's when they get one of the most brilliant ideas in the operation. The FBI sends an undercover cop to talk to the manager of the coffee shop they are in so they can close it down, meaning Steve and Ray don't have another option except to meet back at the hotel room. And after a couple of beers, Ray tells Steve to go back to Ray's room so they could talk. And finally, he agrees. Maybe maybe this is why beer is good. Maybe it's a good lubricant to make Steve just a touch less paranoid. 
And that's when Banerjee does himself in. And here's actual tape from their conversation in the hotel room. Then why haven't you been arrested? Because they don't have strong evidence yet. They don't have proof that I give you the money. They don't have proof I bought the gun. They don't have proof I gave you his address. They don't have proof of all that stuff. That's the reason I don't want to talk. I don't talk to nobody. I never say anything. So they don't have me on tape. Because whatever you say will come back to haunt you. This conversation was all the proof that the FBI needs. They had all the crimes confessed on tape straight from Steve's mouth and had more than enough needed. Now, Steve Banerjee was arrested and charged. He ultimately pleads guilty and is sentenced to 26 years in prison. This feels like not a lot of time, Natalia, 26 years (sighs) in prison. Yeah, given what, I mean, yes, given what he did, this is racketeering, this is conspiracy to murder, this is, in you know, like... um, international conspiracy to commit murder. Yes, I feel like that's pretty uh, That's pretty light. On the other hand, it's still a quarter of a century. So if you're staring down that sentence, um, that must feel pretty major. Yes, I do not want to experience 26 <laughs> years in prison. It's just a comparison to what he did. I'd almost expect it to be even heavier. I agree, but he never pulled the trigger. And remember, right. he's still like a CEO, you know? Still and a businessman. guys man. tend to skate. Yes, right, 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 totally. For him, it's a white-collar crime as opposed to maybe the uh, everything else. Well, Gilberto Rivera Lopez, Louis, was convicted of second-degree murder for his role in killing Nick Denoya and is sentenced to 25 years to life. Ray Colon's sentence was reduced from 15 years to two, months and, to two years and six months for his cooperation with the FBI. So- As he deserves. I mean, I do think he sort of deserved Mm -hmm. that sentence because he really pulled this entire case together. And ultimately, on October 23rd, 1994, Steve Banerjee took his own life awaiting sentencing at the age of 48 years old. Now, this case obviously has so many twists, so many betrayals, and it's kind of hard to keep them all together. But I'm curious about your thoughts about Banerjee's suicide. Do you sort of look at it as... He backed into a corner and he didn't want to have to live with the shame. Was it a family thing? What do you make of it? I think Banerjee was not a really moral person. So the shame was not the issue. I think one, he probably didn't want to spend the rest or much of his life in prison, probably not the rest of his life. He wasn't very old, but here's the thing. If he had been sentenced and gone to prison, the government would have seized Chippendales. And I think for him, that would have been like an offense that was too much to bear. This thing that he built, I mean, he had real um, like disdain for the government. There's this interview he does early in his life, which is really weird that he's asked the softball question where they're like, so how did you build this company? And he literally is like, you know, I built it from the ground up myself. I didn't take those government business loans. And he actually says like the blacks. So you see how racist he is there, but he has this really like very eighties. Like I did this myself, my bootstraps. And so I think that like government seizure would have been too much for him to bear. And so because he's never technically sentenced, he, um, the assets actually transfer to his wife. Wow. Okay. So that, that's motive enough. I think that's just, I think so too. That's, that's another sort of layer. Who owns Chippendales now? Because now it's a Vegas show. Who owns it now? Totally. Great question also. So it's super interesting. There's a guy named Kevin Denberg who is a managing partner. So he's basically CEO and he owns a big chunk of it. 
and he is like a guy my age. He's in his early 40s. He has an MBA. He's a businessman. And it is a very kind of corporate brand right now, a successful one. His grandfather ran the club in New York City. And so little Kevin used to like go into the city, he told me, and he'd like see his grandpa who led this like fast life with like young women all around him in nightclubs and celebrities. And he was like, I kind of want to do that. But what's so interesting is he, he was like an investment banker. And then he just decided to like resuscitate this brand. So I don't know, probably says something about the way, you know, our attitudes towards like a male strip show have changed, business has changed. But yeah, so he's the managing partner now. Kevin Denberg is his name. Long live Chippendales. Well, I mean, as we're wrapping out this case, and there's just so many things that I'm sure people didn't even know about it. The one thing that I kind of come back to is if Steve Banerjee had known what in perpetuity meant and never agreed to sign that deal... All of this may have been, this is just, you know, allegedly here, Mm might have been avoided. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, it's a lesson to study your vocabulary. Yes, I guess. Or if he'd gotten some therapy, honestly. I mean, I am no psychologist, but he is so obviously like, paranoid in this, you know, really obsessive way. And I think that if he had had somebody to talk to and somebody to work this stuff out with, I mean, he maybe could have worked through some of those issues because I think that that as much as any deal, if it wasn't in perpetuity, it probably would have been something else. This guy was obsessed with the fact that everybody was ripping him off and that he would do anything to stop it. And so I think, yes, in perpetuity was like that key clause that actually made this all unfold like it did, but I bet you it would have been something else. In perpetuity, and male egos are kind of the overarching theme of this case. Well, jealousy and betrayal took on a whole new meaning with today's episode. That's for sure. I might never look at a male stripper the same way or, you know, tuxedo cuffs ever again. But Natalia, (laughs) thank you for offering your incredible professional eye to this week's case. Now, remind everyone where they can listen to you and find your podcast. Yes. Listen to Welcome to Your Fantasy. It is now out on all platforms. It's a Spotify original from Pineapple Street Studios, but you can listen anywhere. Nine episodes. And thanks everyone for listening. And I'll see you on another episode of Betrayal. For fan reactions and more, head over to crimefeed.com slash podcasts. And for more true crime TV like this, be sure to download the Discovery Plus app today. 